most of the medications that are given en masse today are to make the skin as non-communicative as possible, as clear as possible. And that's not the skin's job. Like everything that happens on your skin is a communication. If your skin is functioning, you're going to get a blemish. If you're aging and living, you're going to get a wrinkle. Like these aren't health outcomes that we're working towards. They're aesthetic. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Jessica Defino is not your regular beauty journalist. After finding her pieces were regularly rejected from newspapers and magazines for being too incendiary or dissing beauty brands who advertised, she founded her newsletter, The Unpublishable, where, in her own words, she dismantles beauty standards, debunks marketing myths, and explores how beauty culture impacts people. It now has 40,000 readers. The Unpublishable is one of my favorite newsletters. It's not about which products will give you the dewiest skin. Jess is a firmly anti-product beauty reporter, but it gets under the skin, pun intended, of what we see as beautiful. The Huffington Post once described her as giving the middle finger to the entire beauty industry. Jess and I discuss why clear skin isn't a health objective, but an aesthetic one, the evolution of a tan, the explosion of celebrity makeup and skincare lines, and why we're at a tipping point in beauty. Jess, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. I've been reading The Unpublishable for a long time and I'm really excited to speak to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to speak to you as well. You describe yourself as a former liar for hire in the beauty industry. Tell me a bit about how you came to be the anti-beauty beauty editor and why most mainstream publications don't want you to write the pieces that you want to write. I started out in the beauty industry after working for the Kardashian apps in 2015 and having my own sort of skin disaster after trying way too many beauty products and being in a really high stress environment. And I decided, okay, I'm going to pivot into beauty reporting and I'm going to change the industry because I've discovered all of this information that's just not out there in the mainstream media and it deserves to be talked about. Things about how your skin actually functions and why we don't actually need as many products as we think we do to things like how beauty culture impacts our sense of self-worth. And I was so excited to, you know, expose some of these things. And once I started working deeper within the beauty industry specifically, I was like, oh, this is why this information isn't out here. The industry is, you know, has kind of a codependent relationship with brands and advertisers 
and celebrities. And it really does create this sort of huge conflict of interest in what can be reported, how it can be reported, which brands can be called out, which brands are untouchable. And I saw so much corruption in the space that after about a year and a half of being like strictly in the beauty industry, I sort of left the beauty industry again and decided to sort of go it on my own. This is an issue too in fashion. It's a known thing that you don't diss an advertiser and that if someone pays to take you on a luxury trip, you review that brand's collection positively. And it's because no magazines have the budgets to send their writers to Fashion Week, so they rely on the brands to pay to take them. Ergo, positive coverage. And I wonder, what's the answer with beauty and fashion because magazines need advertisers. The magazine industry is already a sinking ship. So I can't really see a clear way out of this. Yes, I can't really see a clear way out of it either, which is why I decided to do a paid newsletter as my main form of reporting. Um, For me, I really love it because I don't have advertisers. I don't talk Mm. about products and I get $5 a month from each reader who wants to contribute that amount to access some of the paid content. Although, you know, most of my content, about 85% of it is free. And to me, I love that because I am loyal to the reader. The person is what is important to me. The person is what is funding my project, not the products. It is hard to imagine how to scale that in a way that creates a more honest beauty media, fashion media in general, Um, Because I think we are so deeply ingrained in in the current system that it Mm. makes it difficult to see its way out. That's kind of how it is with all systems right now. And we are raging against them anyway. You know, we're seeing upheaval in the government, in work culture, you know, the great resignation in um, unionizing and union efforts. So I see a lot of people starting to push back against these systems, even though it might be hard to imagine what comes next. I have hope that the beauty media and the fashion media can be transformed in the same ways, even though I can't necessarily imagine <laughs> imagine that future yet. It does feel like we're at a bit of a tipping point in beauty. We're at this really interesting time where this super high octane look has become normalized. It's de rigueur now for 21-year-olds to have filler, for teenage girls to have nine-step skincare routines and to be able to contour. And it's all about this airbrushed perfection and it's starting really, really young. How did we get to this point? Is it just social media? And what kind of anxiety does this bring? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just social media. I think as long as people have been fighting for power, beauty has been part of the pursuit of power and it has caused all of the issues that we're currently seeing. And I think the trends of today and the pace of today was set centuries ago, was set millennia ago. You know, beauty culture has been formed from four main forces, and those forces are patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism. So basically, you can trace any beauty standard or current beauty trend to one or all four of those. So as long as those have existed, beauty culture problems have persisted. I do think that we are seeing it happen at like a hyper speed cycle today, 
partly because of the digital revolution. It started with the industrial revolution and it really mirrors how society is moving in all of these other ways. You know, we're mm-hmm. progressing at a pace that has never been seen before in history because we're we're constantly doing more and more and more, faster, faster, faster in everything. And younger, younger, younger in everything. Exactly. And yeah, that's that's part of the the promise of beauty is younger. So we have mm-hmm. to go younger, younger, younger all the time. That is part of the capitalist promise of the beauty industry. And I do think that the emergence of social media has made existing problems in beauty culture um, a lot more visible and a lot more impactful and a lot more harmful. So what we are seeing, you know, beauty is generally messaged to us as this form of empowerment and self-expression and confidence, but the data tells a very different story. Um, Beauty culture is associated with increased anxiety, depression, facial dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, disordered eating, obsessive thoughts about appearance, um, self-harm, and even suicide. So it is a really serious problem. It is a public health issue from my perspective. Has it got a lot worse? Yes, it's definitely gotten a lot worse. I think part of what it is, I think, is that we are living in these more digital, more virtual worlds, especially since the pandemic. Um, We have fewer check-in points with real people. And so we're constantly comparing ourselves to a pixelated image of what a person is. And so our own faces are one of the only examples that we might see throughout the day of what a real person looks like. And we're comparing that to digitally altered, photoshopped, face-tuned, filtered images. Um, Even if the image is not filtered, there's, you know, a softening effect of a photo. All of that, you know, sort of comes together and in our mind creates this almost universally dysmorphic view of ourselves. What I keep thinking about as well is every time I read about yet another glossy TikTok trend like donut skin, which was my latest discovery, which I'm sure you'll have known about for a very (laughs) long time, but I'm not on TikTok and refuse to join. So I actually only read about the trends, which is fine by me. But every time I read these, I just think, God, makeup when I was a teenager, especially because I was a teenager in the noughties, was so dicey. It was overplucked eyebrows, blue mascara, streaky fake tan, lashings of like frosted lip balms and bubblegum colored lip gloss, you know, those juicy tubes. We all had one of those in our Miss 60 back pocket. But that ability to make mistakes and to experiment is so precious when you're a teenager and it feels like it's been completely lost. Yes. I am actually writing a piece about this now that sort of ties into it where it's like there's actually no right time to be a woman. When you're young, the goal is to look older. And as you get older, the goal is to look younger. And it's all this construct of a system that wants us to constantly be battling nature. And I see that a lot with the glazed donut skin and glass skin and dolphin skin. Can you explain what that is? Oh my God, dolphin skin. I've never heard that. Can you explain what that is for lots of listeners who will be like, what the fuck are they talking about? Okay. So currently like the biggest skincare trend is the glazed donut look. Hailey Bieber is really pushing it right now with her skincare line road. That's kind of like the lasting promise. I think one of the products is called like glazed peptide serum, Um, but it was a trend for about a year before she jumped on it as well. And the idea is just having your skin be so glowy and so dewy and so sticky looking, honestly, as to resemble a glazed donut. And it's a it's an offshoot of glass skin where it was, let's make our skin look like a reflective 
shard of glass. There was dumpling skin, uh, like I said, dolphin skin. And all of these are just like, it's literal self-objectification under the guise of beauty. It's like dehumanizing. It is deeply dehumanizing. The two things I find really interesting as well is that it's only sustainable if you are reglazing every like 15 minutes, because as soon Mm -hmm. as you step out, the elements will just dry you up. But the second thing is that I think I remember reading that glass skin had been attributed to Korean beauty culture because they're obviously often attributed to trends that we have in the West because they're kind of on skincare before us. And apparently it's not a Korean beauty trend. People just said it was because Mm -hmm. it gave it more weight. It made it seem sort of more authentic, which I find even more troubling. Yes, this is actually a creeping trend in the beauty industry right now where under the guise of inclusivity and diversity, beauty writers and beauty editors um, and even beauty influencers on TikTok and Instagram are attributing new trends to different cultures as a way to seem as if they're honoring that culture or respecting that culture in some way. And I mean, it really only compounds the problem because it's a lie and it's it's sort of like weaponizing this new standard in the beauty industry where we are trying to be more inclusive and we are trying to be more diverse because for so long the beauty industry was just young blonde whiteness but if it's a lie it doesn't actually help anyone Mm-mm. You wrote recently, and I thought this was so fascinating. In five to 19 years, we will revisit the beauty media's role in toxic beauty culture the same way we revisited the media's role in diet culture, the same way we're revisiting the media's treatment of famous women in the noughties. You might as well start deconditioning now. As someone who's unpacked the media's treatment of women in the noughties quite extensively, I was so fascinated by this prediction. How do you predict in five to 19 years? I think that was a typo. I probably meant five to 10. Uh, <laughs> Slip maybe, of the finger. Maybe I've actually just copied that down wrong, but okay, five to 10 years. How do you predict that we will look back at this time? Yeah, I, I mean, I see so many parallels between diet culture and between beauty culture. And I mean, for instance, on Twitter today, I saw a clip of America's Next Top Model going around where it was Tyra Banks and Janice Dickinson and all of these judges talking about how fat one of the models was. And then they show a picture of the model and she was real thin. And people were watching this clip and being like, how did we ever think this? But we did think it because that was the culture then. And I mean, it's almost encouraging to me. It makes me really hopeful that we are revisiting and and seeing things for what they are. But for instance, I see so many parallels between diet culture like that and beauty culture. Both are based on this false idea of health that is sold to us as an aesthetic of health rather than actual health. Mm -hmm. Um, We can see Mm -hmm. this, for instance, in like the use of BMI in in the medical system, whereas now we know like your body mass index is not actually a great indicator of your health outcomes. The same thing I think will happen in dermatology where it's like most of the medications that are given on mass today are to make the skin as non-communicative as possible, as clear as possible. And that's not the skin's job. Like everything that happens on your skin is a communication. If your skin is functioning, you're going to get a blemish. If you're aging and living, you're going to get a wrinkle. Like these aren't health outcomes that we're working towards. They're aesthetic. So I I really do see that 
in a couple of years, hopefully five to 10, maybe 19, (laughs) some of these myths will be busted in a more mainstream way where people on social media and the actual media will look back and be like, wait, how did we ever think glazed donut skin was a healthy trend to push on young girls? How did we ever think that dehumanizing our bodies was a marker of health? I really hope it happens. I can't predict how it will, but but seeing some recent examples of how we are recognizing how wrong we were in the early 2000s about bodies, about women, about empowerment um, will someday translate to beauty. You've written extensively about the Kardashians and how they've changed beauty ideals from what I think of as that sweet valley high all-American girl of the 90s, long blonde hair, size 10, to an ethnically ambiguous melting pot of tan skin, big bum, tiny waist, big lips and hair extensions. Some people argue that the Kardashians body type has made beauty more inclusive, more so than the double zero ideal of the noughties, because it's not about being super skinny. It's about having, you know, a bigger bum. But I think it feels even more exhaustive because it's like the combination of things that have been put together, the minute waist with a bigger bum that's only big in this very specific way. And it's a body that's literally not available to anyone who doesn't have surgery. It's it's a body built for and by Instagram. Yes. I mean, I would say it is just as attainable as the sort of heroine chic look of the 90s and oddies. Um, There is nothing more attainable about it. I think what people sometimes are seeing when they see that is they are saying, wow, look at these features finally from other cultures and other ethnicities besides whiteness that are finally popular. You know, we have the bigger lips, we have the big butt, those are being celebrated. That can be tempting to think is a good thing and think it's being celebrated. But what's happening is those features are being grafted onto white bodies. And not only white bodies, they're being grafted onto other bodies. And the way that I look at it is this is one of the ways that beauty culture has incorporated the values of colonialism. Um, This Mm -hmm. is colonizing of the body. This is mining other cultures, other ethnicities, other people for features that you like and taking them and grafting it onto yourself and calling it beauty. And in a way that actually devalues those features. So if we look at it now, there has been all of this press around the fact that like you said, Kim has has dropped a lot of weight recently. So she's looking very thin. The Kardashian sisters, their butts are looking smaller. People are speculating, like, why are their butts looking so small? Kim and Chloe have both bleached their hair blonde again. Yes, I read this. So people are like, so skinny and blonde is back. So it's like they're doing a big shift. Skinny, blonde, white girl is back. So now, okay, now that we have this and we're seeing skinny, blonde, white girl is back, Take that information and look back at what they did for the bigger butt, the bigger lips, the tiny waist. Were they actually celebrating diversity? Were they actually making other features universally beautiful? No, they were devaluing them and turning them into trend-driven trend yeah, moments of history. That is not mm. helping us get anywhere near this sort of universal, timeless um, acceptance of our own bodies as they are. In fact, I, I would argue that it's done a lot of harm. 
I mean, as you obviously used to work on the Kardashian apps, you mentioned that earlier, and you've written extensively about them and kind of every week, basically, there's a different controversy, particularly with Kim. She said she would eat human shit if it made her look younger. And then again, there was controversy when, as you mentioned, she lost a lot of weight to fit into Marilyn Monroe's dress for the Met Gala, which really upset lots of fashion historians and upset them even more when she damaged it. But I was thinking about this and it is very normal in Hollywood to eat very little. There's no way a lot of celebrities are naturally a size six. And Mm -hmm. further to that, it's something that a lot of non-famous brides do. Not for nothing is the wedding diet a cliche. Is it just that Kim says the quiet part out loud, that most women still aspire to be slimmer than they are, that most women would do, or a lot of women would do even really disgusting things in order to look younger, that we live in this time Mm -hmm. of body positivity and strong, not skinny. But the truth is that a lot of women feel exactly the same way about their bodies that they always did. And she's just vocalizing that. Exactly. I mean, that is how I felt about the New York Times quote that she would eat poop to look younger. (laughs) I was like, this this is sort of a mental challenge that a lot of us have absorbed into our brains. I call it beauty culture brain, where you start to think that these extreme unsavory things are actually worth it in order to be a little bit more beautiful. And to me, that just proves what weight the world has given to physical beauty over other things. Mm. If you would be willing to eat feces to look younger okay that's pointing to a huge problem in our culture and we should probably start examining that and fixing that and the same thing with the comments about losing weight i had posted something about it on twitter i think i can't remember what exactly but a lot of people responded to me saying "Ugh, this isn't just kim like brides do it women do Mm. it anyone who needs to fit into a dress does it and my response was yes that is my point This is an unhealthy and a mentally unwell behavior and mindset, and we all are doing it. So what can we do to undo it? I mean, I think the value of Kim saying these things out loud is that it's easy to point at that and say, wow, that that is too far. And I think almost the beauty media and our culture in general is missing this sort of self reflective piece where we look back at ourselves and say, well, how have I incorporated that mindset into my life? And if it looks, you know, insane coming from a celebrity, why is it any better if I am doing it? And and how can I be part of sort of deconditioning myself and therefore like deconditioning beauty culture in general? What about when she says, why can't I lose weight for art? I was kind of making an artistic moment by wearing Marilyn Monroe's dress. You know, she she said that Christian Bale had lost all this weight to make a movie. Why wasn't she allowed to have her kind of artistic moment? And then more broadly speaking, if she says, you know, why can't I experiment with being slimmer and being curvier and having blonde hair and having short hair? You know, why can't I, it's my body. Why can't I make the art I want to make with it? What would you say to that? I would say... It's not art. (laughs) I think it is um, completely unethical to compare what she does with her body to, for instance, Christian Bale losing weight for The Machinist. (laughs) That is a movie. There was a point to it. I mean, we can have the argument on whether or not that is healthy behavior. Yeah, I mean, he was too thin. Yes. (laughs) But what Kim is selling when she does that is beauty standards. Kim profits off of the beauty standards Mm. she sets. Mm -hmm. So it's not art. It is not comparable to an actor. 
It is literally setting an extreme beauty standard and then convincing other people to try and meet that beauty standard and selling them the products to do so. You know, she has her skincare line. She had her makeup line. She has done paid ads for diet lollipops. And she has skims, which is all exactly, about kind of Exactly. She has shapewear. shapewear. Yeah. All of it. So the art that she claims to be promoting is not art, but consumerism. And she's profiting off of that. And the more extreme and the more unhealthy she can make the beauty trends that she sets, the more money she makes. So I think it's really important. I mean, even for journalists, I have been so disappointed in every beauty journalist who has let that comparison to actors and movies be printed without contest. I think that it's so damaging and and unethical even. I'm always amazed by, um, and this is obviously something you pointed out and ultimately why you did The Unpublishable, about how little critique there is, though, in beauty journalism. Mm -hmm. I was reading an interview with Huda Catton the other day, and um, she's really inspiring in lots of ways as a businesswoman, but there was no interrogation of the fact that she perpetuates a very similar look to the Mm -hmm. Kardashians, which is filler and, you know, big lips and Botox and all sorts of things that are very expensive, you know, a lot of beauty labor. And there was no kind of holding to account about the responsibility of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, I mean, for me is, is one of the largest problems in the beauty industry and in the beauty media specifically. And it, it comes to this point of, of gender roles for me. Womanhood has been so wrapped up in this idea of physical beauty that critiquing physical beauty, critiquing the products we use, critiquing the people who sell them to us feels almost like an attack on womanhood itself. And I think consumers and readers identify a lot with the figureheads in the beauty industry um, and even identify it to the like with products themselves. You know, thinking back to like glazed donut skin and glass skin, like We're identifying with inanimate objects and it makes it really hard to critique corporations and critique these figureheads because we feel so connected to them. And to me, it seems like we have a hard time critiquing beauty because we don't want it to come off as tearing down women. We're in this era where it's like, we have to empower women, Um, empowered women, empower other women. And The sad truth is, is that there are a lot of female figureheads in the beauty industry who need to be critiqued as an act of feminism, defining feminism as collective liberation, because part of of women being equal humans is that women aren't perfect. (laughs) They do things that need to be critiqued and examined and unpacked as well. And I think at this point in history, the the beauty media does not really have the guts to do so. Except with... Goop. Gwyneth Paltrow, I feel like, is criticized mm, yes. a lot. In fact, there was almost like a trend. It got a bit boring where just like every piece on Gwyneth Paltrow was just like, isn't she terrible? Yes. Well, I have a, a theory on this too, and it, and it comes back to colonialism, where a lot of the reason that we, the media, feels comfortable critiquing Gwyneth Paltrow and and women like that and beauty brands like that is because a lot of it is based on Eastern medicine, Eastern wellness, indigenous wisdom, Eastern science. So other types of sciences that aren't based on the Western understanding of science, sciences that are, you know, sometimes just as valid, oftentimes just as valid. The problem is, is that Eastern medicine has been co-opted by white women like Gwyneth. 
and not fully explained and contextualized in the way that it's meant to. These women, and I, I mean, I don't want to say just women because so many men power the wellness space too. These people have stolen Eastern knowledge, indigenous knowledge, disregarded the history of it, like completely divorced it from its context mm -hmm. where it does make sense and have repackaged it as, you know, $900 serums. Yeah. So yeah. I think a lot of the time when the media feels comfortable critiquing that sort of thing, that sort of goopian philosophy, a lot of it is tied up in our anti-Asian racism and our colonizer mindset. That's so interesting. She is all, also definitely a love to hate figure though. <laughs> exactly. Thankfully, she really doesn't seem to care. <laughs> There's a lot of layers there and that's not the only one, but that's the one that comes to mind right now. No, I think that's really interesting. I had not heard it put that way. It's um, such a thoughtful way to look at it and it totally makes sense. I mean, a lot of your work focuses on this idea of beauty labor offering a false empowerment, but to play devil's advocate briefly, a lot of people say, you know, makeup is empowering because it allows me into spaces I wouldn't be allowed into, or it gives me the confidence to create myself how I want to be seen. And that's something you often hear from the queer community. What are your thoughts on that? Is it that, okay, well, that's an individual choice. That's not a kind of, that's different if it's not like a corporate commercial endeavor. I'm going to split my answer up into two parts because I think please do. there are two different things to hear here. So first is... Of course, of course, beauty allows you access to spaces that you wouldn't otherwise have access to because beauty is a function of patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism. Okay, fair point. Yeah. <laughs> and when you participate in the system, you are rewarded by the system. Like, yes, you're correct. The system is wrong, though. <laughs> the system is exploitative. The system is, you know, materially and immaterially harming so many people. And that is a system I think we need to divest from. Okay, so still a false empowerment. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little tricky of, of how can we have individual impact on these systems. But I think it's important to, you know, if you're choosing to participate in beauty to climb this ladder, you know, okay, I'm not going to tell you to not do that. Who am I? But keep in mind what you're doing and what systems you're upholding and just you know, be honest with yourself about that and have that kernel in your head. If beauty is helping me advance in this patriarchal system, then beauty is a tool of patriarchy. And just knowing that, just holding that in your head will eventually help you divest from certain behaviors that aren't really serving you because it forces an honesty. It forces honesty with yourself. It forces you to acknowledge where you are participating and complicit, and it makes you and I'm not just saying this from my personal experience, I'm saying this from thousands of people who have reached out to me, it makes you want to stop participating when you can and when it's safe. So I would just suggest that as like a universal thing to focus on. What about if you just love wearing lots of makeup? Yeah, I think that certainly is valid. A lot of the times we love wearing makeup because we love the validation it gives us. We love the reward that we get from it. And that is you know, response to a cultural pressure rather than a pure internal force of self-expression. So it's important to think about that too. But I, I love to say like makeup and, and beauty is part of what makes us human. You know, the earliest uses of makeup um, can be traced back to African tribes, to the ancient Egyptians. And makeup was 
it was part of community. It was part of celebration. It was part of ceremony. People mm. wore makeup to reflect their gods that they worshipped or to mark their role in the community. You know, for instance, you would have certain makeup if you were um, a tribal elder and certain makeup if you were in this particular phase of life or if you were the leader or if you were, um, you know, a warrior. And that is all pure human expression and, and valid. And it was all for for the cultivation of community and connection. Um, beauty has strayed very far from that. We think it's about community and connection, but it's really about proving that you are at the top rung of beauty. Like beauty is a power struggle now. So I think it's important to sort of examine your motivations there. But of course, there are so many ways beauty and makeup can be this pure human expression of art and community and and, and all of these wonderful things. And I do particularly see that in the queer community um, and especially with trans folks where the use of makeup and the use of some of these beauty tools is stemming from this really pure internal knowledge of the self and wanting to express that self on the outside. And that's a beautiful and that's valid and that is how beauty should be utilized. For most folks though, the way that we use beauty is in response to an outside external cultural pressure. And those things are very different. And I just think it's important for us if we are going to be able to use beauty in these beautiful, um, pure community enriching ways that we have to recognize when we're not using it in those ways. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Stripe and Stare, a game-changing underwear brand that makes knickers so comfortable you forget you are wearing them. Because nothing great was ever achieved in uncomfortable pants. Stripe and Stare knickers are sustainably sourced from beechwood trees, use 95% less water in their production, and make knickers that are softer than cotton. I am a long-term fan of Stripe and Stare, not least because the material lies perfectly flat against the skin, meaning no VPL, which used to be the absolute bane of my life. Stripe and Stare knickers come in sizes 6 to 22 and are available to buy at Selfridges, Shopbop and Revolve, or if you shop direct at stripeandstare.com, you can get 20% off for the next month using the code RIGHT20. That's R-I-G-H-T 20. So go on, buy yourself some undercrackers and think of this podcast every time you wear them. Huge thanks to Stripe and Stare. Your whole MO is your skin doesn't need skincare. I'm sure I'm not the only one to feel quite vulnerable and a little panicked when I read that. And I don't even use that much, but what I do use feels really essential. And it you know, goes against everything I've ever read or been told. Why do you believe your skin doesn't need skincare? And what do you use on your face? Do you use anything? Sure. So, I mean, human skin has evolved over uh, millennia without the use of pre-bottled skincare products. That is a largely modern invention. So, you know, just based on science and common sense, your skin doesn't need skincare. And I think we can see this when we look at the global, like people globally, there are billions of people who are not in positions of power or access who live in poverty, who don't use skincare and like skin issues are not, are not a major issue. 
you know, this is not one of the problems that needs to be solved by industrialization. Globally, majority of people don't use skincare. Their skin is largely okay. It's fine. Um, the skin also has built-in mechanisms to self-cleanse, self-moisturize, self-exfoliate, self-heal, self-protect. Those mechanisms are disturbed by the environment sometimes, the environment being what you are putting on your skin, what you are putting on your skin being products. So a lot of the products we use disrupt these processes and then make it so that we think we do need other products to fix the problems that have been caused by the initial product use. Mm. So it's really confusing and it is really difficult to, to be able to tell when a product has caused your particular skin concern because that, I mean, it could have started when you were 12 and you started cleansing with uh, oil-free acne wash. And that has set off this chain reaction to where your skin is now dependent on products because you've stripped it of its natural oils, et cetera. So I acknowledge that it is very, um, it can be a difficult process to divest from products and pinpoint where your particular issues are coming from. I think a great place for people to start is to just, okay, the skin has these built-in functions in general. What is my skin doing compared to those functions and where does my skin need topical support? Um, because some people's skin does. For instance, I was on Accutane in college before I knew anything about skincare <laughs> and the skin's functions. And what Accutane does is damage your sebaceous glands so that they don't produce as much oil. Didn't really help my acne, but has made it so that my skin doesn't produce enough oil anymore. So I supplement, I support my skin with plain jojoba oil. Um, I love jojoba because it's a 97% chemical match to human sebum. So the skin really accepts it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are tons of people out there who have particular um, little quirks in their skin that can use topical support. I'm certainly one of them, but I think it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to find out what your skin needs. If anything, sometimes it won't need anything except for like sunscreen. And sometimes you might have, you know, certain issues, hormonal issues or, you know, sebum production issues that do require a topical product or can be helped with a topical product. And in those cases, you know, totally fine. I was really interested to read your piece about the damage you felt like, we call it Roaccutane here, but I think, do you call it Accutane in the States? Yes. It, I mean, it used to be called Accutane. Um, and then I think there were like some lawsuits and now it's isotretinoin over here. <laughs> okay. So it was, I remember because I used it briefly in my mid twenties when I had mild acne and I had a very positive experience in it in that, you know, it completely cleared up my skin and I don't seem to have any resulting issues. So I was so interested to read about your experience and how you regretted using it. And I wondered, how did your experience with acne and Accutane lead you to develop an interest in psychodermatology? Mm, yes, that's a great question. So I will preface this by saying that ever since I hit puberty, I have had, you know, quote unquote, problem skin. I have dealt with everything from acne to eczema, dry skin, oily skin, uh, dermatitis. And I've been on every prescription and uh, product you can imagine from Accutane to antibiotics to um retinoids, medicated ointments, uh, and topical steroids. So I have a lot of experience in this arena. Basically what happened is that none of those things really ever worked for me mm. because they were attempting to treat a symptom without understanding the underlying issue that was giving rise to the symptom. Right. Um, and it had never crossed my mind as a teen, as a 20 something to look into like, Hmm, what's actually 
happening in my body or in the environment that's causing my body to react in this way. It was just, here's something that'll get rid of it, hopefully, <laughs> and none of them did. So this sort of culminated after using topical steroids for too long, and it resulted in something called skin atrophy, which is basically, you know, the organ stops sort of functioning. Um, my skin was sort of peeling off of my face in these like raw red chunks. It was oozing plasma. It was, I couldn't put skincare on. I couldn't put makeup on. God. It was really traumatic, um, really devastating. It was, yeah, it was traumatic. I mean, I had to go to work like that. People were, wouldn't ride the elevator with me. Uh, they were asking if I was contagious. It was a lot. And I couldn't put products on because my skin like physically hurt too mm -hmm. much. <laughs> and so I started going down this path of, okay, what can I do to support my skin without products? Is there anything I can do? And I you know, fell down a Google hole and discovered psychodermatology, which is the study of the skin-brain connection. It's called the skin-brain access in like scientific papers. It is a network of neurons and nerves and, and chemical pathways and everything that connects the brain and the skin. And we see this connection every day. I mean, like when you're embarrassed and you blush, that's the mm. brain-skin connection. When you are scared and you're, the color drains from your face, that's the brain-skin connection. Like when you see somebody that makes you horny and you get like goosebumps or something, <laughs> you start sweating, brain skin connection. <laughs> so it's like we, we see this all the time, but we never think of it in terms of how it impacts our skin health. Mm -hmm. And and one of the huge things that I learned is just that stress levels really impact the health of the skin. And I mean, people get it. When you're stressed, you can have a rosacea outbreak. You can have an acne outbreak. Everyone gets a stress pimple from time to time. Um, but what we're not taught is that you can actually soothe those symptoms through your brain as well. So by applying things like meditation and mindfulness and mantras and mindset work, it actually has a scientifically proven effect on the health of your skin. Um, and I started incorporating these practices into my life and built up my skin barrier. Like it had a physical, almost immediate effect on my skin and just sort of proved to me this relationship between stress and skin and relieving stress and soothing your skin that has, you know, stuck with me now for six, seven years. Can like meditation and can it really clear up? Say someone's got like, I'm thinking of friends of mine and in my youth who had, you know, really, really severe acne. Can you really meditate your way out of, of that? I mean, it will, it depends completely on what your core triggers are. So for someone whose core triggers are stress related, so say stress induces uh, cortisol. So the cortisol is a stress hormone. Cortisol, you know, floods throughout the body. What cortisol triggers is um, testosterone production. What testosterone triggers is sebum production. So the stress really does trigger testosterone, sebum pathway and flood your pores with too much oil. And that is what creates a lot of um, acne lesions. The oil on your face, the amount of oil on your face impacts the environment that your microbiome lives in. So this is the bacteria and viruses that live naturally on your skin and keep your skin functioning. If there's too much oil, it will create too much of oil eating bacteria. And that is what leads to acne breakouts. And all of this could potentially stem from a stress problem. But of course, I mean, humans are so, you know, vast and different. And there are plenty of pathways that could result in acne. So if stress 
and mindset things are not part of your particular pathway. I mean, meditation will still help with your skin barrier, but it might not clear up that root issue. Your root issue might be PCOS and hormones, um, or it might be that you're using the wrong skincare products and your microbiome is severely imbalanced. So yeah, meditation can help immensely, but only if that is part of your core pathway to acne. I was fascinated by your theory of how skincare has become a class performance. And I mean, I think this probably goes back to donut and dolphin skin, which has become the, for example, the main advert, as you say, in Hailey Bieber's road skincare. So if you have enough money to want to look like a very beautiful and rich model, then, you know, you would buy skincare. Is this the goop effect or has skincare has it always been a class performance even when it was like ponds cream um i mean i think certain products may be not fitting into this overall idea of beauty as a class performance because it's not an individual product thing necessarily it's the overall aesthetic that is being sold and i do think that throughout time the standard of beauty has always been a class performance um one really effective example, I think, is thinking about um, skin tones and tanning, uh, pale skin versus tan skin. So for a long time, pale skin was the height of beauty. Um, You know, women would powder their skin to be ghostly white because that signified um, wealth. That was beauty being a class performance. And that was because the working class was working outside and they were tan. And so having a tan meant like you didn't have enough money to not be out in the sun. You were so poor that you had to be doing backbreaking work in the sun and you were tan. And the aristocrats could be in the house, never getting sun, super pale, signifier of wealth. And that's why it was popular. We see this all change after the Industrial Revolution and particularly because of Coco Chanel popularizing the tan because now... Yeah, yeah. She was like the the big the big impetus for for tan skin to now be this height of beauty because it signified a leisure class. Suddenly now when you have factories, the working class, the poor are inside and they're pale and they are not seeing the sun because they're working from morning to night. It was this the 30s. It was like the 20s or the 30s and If you were wealthy, you had time and money to go on vacation and lay out in the sun and get tan. And I mean, we're still seeing that today. Tan, I mean, people are tanning, people are self-tanning. Tan skin is like this this paragon of beauty and it's entirely um, a class performance, even though we have sort of drifted away from those roots and don't really recognize what we're doing anymore. That's 100% where it has stemmed from. I do prefer with myself with a tan as well. I can't, I can't deny it. I do feel better after a <laughs> fake tan. What do you think of the trend for celebrity skincare? Because it seems like everyone has their own skincare line now, you know, not just the Kardashians and the Kardashian adjacent like Hailey Bieber, but there's some really surprising names in there now, like Idris Elba, Millie Bobby Brown, mm-hmm. Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> and the thing that I find a bit baffling is that surely there are no gaps left in the market. Where are these celebrities seeing these mysterious gaps that I don't see, that we seem to be in an absolute kind of flood of skincare products? And secondly, many celebrities have the faces and skin that they have either through genetics or cosmetic procedure or a combination of both. And then as consumers, we are buying their 
creams and hoping we can look like an A-lister. And that feels really rank. Yeah, no, it's it's horrible. There are no gaps in the market. That is pure marketing BS. I mean, skincare is so popular now. Like skincare as a category really blew up maybe about 10 years ago. For a long time, it was surpassing makeup sales, which had never been heard of before in the history of the mm. industry. So, I mean, skincare is just sort of this huge, vastly growing opportunity, partly because it's being uh, shoved in our faces and partly because we are gobbling it right up. Um, so it's a very easy window for a celebrity to say, hey, how can I make some money without doing really any actual work? And yeah, they are succeeding at it. So I think it's important to keep in mind that it's pretty much just a cash grab. Um, there's even a, a beauty incubator that works with CAA, which is a talent agency in California. There... Yeah. That's so it helps CAA's clients, which are celebrities, actors, actresses, launch their own beauty brands. So they sort of white label the products for them. Exactly. exactly. Well, that happens as well with tequila, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. There are so yes. many celebrity tequila brands now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, that's what that is. It's just, it's very easy for the celebrity. It's very popular with the consumer. And especially in skincare, you get to hide it behind this guise of health and self-care. It's not as, you know, seen as superficial or performative as makeup. It's like, this is for you. This is the health of your skin. And and it's a self-care act. And you need to take time for you by buying my, you know, $200 serum. So celebrities get a lot of benefit out of it. What about when it's a a line that's developed with kind of a bona fide skincare specialist like Victoria Beckham and Mm -hmm. Augustina's Bader? I don't know how yeah. to say his name. Um, I mean, I just it's unnecessary. Augustinus Bader, Bader, however you say it, already exists. Like they're, the celebrity tie-in is just a money thing for the celebrity and for the brand. Like I guarantee you Victoria Beckham does not know anything about cosmetic chemistry. She is not in a lab whipping up these products. <laughs> None of these celebrities are. Like it's not coming from them. It's not based on their knowledge at all. Like you said, it's not even based on what they do to their own skin. Like the celebrity aesthetic currently is born out of tons of cosmetic procedures, Mm. surgeries, skincare that is certainly more expensive than the skincare they're peddling. Glam squads. Yeah, glam squads. And I mean, honestly, a lot of it is still filters and Facetune and Photoshop. Like Mm. (laughs) the celebrities are still doing that to their images too. And then they're saying, oh, look, I did it with skincare. And it's like, you know, you look at JLo. She's been famous for 20-something years. Her skincare line only came out in the past two years. Like, these products didn't exist for JLo to use them and, and become, you know, as beautiful as she is. Like, they have nothing to do with how she looks. Is Pharrell's skincare line, for example. Everyone's always like, Pharrell is ageless. Um, I want to look, I want my skin to look like his skin. Okay, he looks ageless, but that's like genetics and nothing to do with his brand new skincare line that didn't exist <laughs> six months ago. <laughs> it's all a ruse. <laughs> this podcast is all about myth busting. So I want to end the conversation on a quick fire myth bust. So I'm going to read out a list. Oh gosh! <laughs> and I just want you to say yay or nay. So yay if there's like anything to it. Nay if it's just hogswash. Okay. <laughs> okay. Donut skin. Nay. Vampire facials. Nay. Chemical peels? Nay. No, for sure. No, no, no. Moisturizer infused with your own blood? Mm, nay. Beer hair mask? 
Uh, sure. Yay. Okay. Egg white hair mask did not work for me. Um, ooh, I don't know much about egg whites. I would say nay, but you don't need it. Might be fun, but you don't need it. Red wine bath. Ooh, again, might be fun, but not necessary. Beasting facial. Ooh, nay. <laughs> IV drips. These are so popular. Um, depending, if, if you have uh, a root issue that is exacerbated by a vitamin deficiency, yay. They can be helpful in a medical situation. <laughs> yes, but not, what about after like a night out when you're a bit hungover? I mean, yeah. I mean, alcohol really True. siphons yeah. your body of nutrients. So it, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Probably not yeah. as cheap as a Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just eat. I mean, my, my thing with any supplement is like, look up what foods are rich in that supplement and just make yourself a meal if you have yes. the access. Yeah. That's what my, uh, my best friend who's a registered dietitian always says is, is <laughs> look at what has that. It's much cheaper. Okay. And then a, a bit of an old school one to end on cupping. Ooh. Yay. Again, is this goes yay? back to um, Eastern medicine. Cupping right. is, I think, a traditional Chinese medicine practice. And if you look at these things through the lens of Chinese medicine rather than the lens of the white women who have co-opted them into Western culture um, and look at the real purpose and how they're actually supposed to be used, there is so much benefit to a lot of these practices, you know, similar to gua sha, similar to massage. Yeah, that's kind of awful that I definitely learned about it in circa 2009 when Gwyneth went on the red carpet yep. with all of her <laughs> cupping. Okay, well, I'm going to go and read about that now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jess, for being so incredibly thought-provoking and thoughtful. I've loved speaking to you and I will carry on being <laughs> challenged by the unpublishable for a long time. Thank you so much. I love chatting with you. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land. <laughs>